The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is sponsored by Roofstock on Chain. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. This week, Coindesk released its much-anticipated most influential list, the ninth time we have pulled together the definitive list of the people and institutions that have over the past year had the most impact and influence on the crypto industry. Inevitably, 2022's list was going to be a challenge. What a year it has been. Now, this is not necessarily a list of heroes. To be eligible, the candidate merely needs to have been influential, negatively or positively. So the group this year inevitably includes a subset that you might call a rogues gallery. The project also came with an NFT drop uh, of the different pieces of artwork that we used to illustrate the stories about each of the list members. To discuss it, we'll be joined by Ben Schiller, the managing editor of Coindesk's Consensus Magazine, which, by the way, is a rebranding from its prior name of Layer 2. But before we talk to Ben, let's get to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, you've obviously been following our list over the years and how it I've shaped. been on your list over the years. Oh, you have? I didn't know. I didn't Multiple times. Yes, oh, I wow. have. Yo. You know, I was wondering, actually, if in general lists like this this year, particularly if the frame is most influential, right? Like, I know that like when time does their list, there's always this struggle with like, is the number one person the most villainous <laughs> you know, person who had the most impact? And that's kind of inarguable. Like, and so every year it's like, is it Putin? Is it Putin? You know, kind of thing, right? Yeah. And this year with all of the kind of, like you put it, like a rogues gallery, like all of this kind of came to light and came to a head this year, yeah. especially in the last six months. How could you not? How could you not kind of acknowledge the tremendous influence that some of these actors, individual actors are, are having on the entire ecosystem? I mean, you kind of had to do it, but it's, yeah. it's a little, uh, you know, I, I didn't love it. I didn't love that that was the reality, but, you know, I hear you. <laughs> uh, it is what it is. You know, and I think yeah. this is the nature of journalism as well. Like we just cover the stories, whatever they are. Yep. I mean, I think, you know, hats off to Ben and his team. I think they did a really good job of threading that needle. Of course, 
this list never satisfies everybody, right? In fact, <laughs> in fact, inevitably, in fact, everybody is unsatisfied by some stretch. You can if never be happy did, with all of them. Right? It's impossible wrong, to make everybody happy. <laughs> and I think that one of the, you know, we, we often get pushed back. Oh, why didn't you highlight these people? These were doing good work and so forth. Again, it's just, it's a process of, and it's a subjective process, right? It's never going to be uh, something that's founded on any science. But we do, we get input from readers. We get, you know, we, we have a really rigorous process, but I'm really not the person to talk about this. This is really for Ben. So, Ben, welcome to Money Reimagined. Thanks for having me on. Happy to have you. So, just, yeah, talk a little bit about the process you guys go through and what was unique about, about this year. Yeah, I mean, it was probably a year like no other. And as you say, this is the ninth uh, year we've been doing this. Uh, it's personally my fourth year I've been doing this. And every year is a challenge, really, because, you know, the industry becomes more and more complex. You know, what started with Bitcoin went to Ethereum, went to CBDCs, went to DeFi, stablecoins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and NFTs, obviously. So that complexity is is challenging to kind of reflect comprehensively in a list like this. And, and this year, as you say, we had this kind of game of two halves to, to use a sort of soccer analogy. You know, uh, we had our consensus festival in June. And uh, I remember that that night when we were having our party at the end of the festival, it was clear that uh, Celsius was going down and what had been a kind of a bull market and a kind of run up of prices for the first six months of the year completely changed at that time, at that tipping point. Uh, and the second half of the year has largely been a story of, you know, one scandal after another, particularly with the FTX uh, scandal that we're seeing playing out right now. And so uh, you can see that reflected in the list. There's a lot of saints on the list, uh, but there's equally a number of sinners as well. So you asked about the process. So yeah, so we have a series of meetings starting in early October, where we gather, you know, all of the global news team, all of the uh, journalists that we have working in different departments, different beats, and we get them together and we formed what we call a spaghetti board, which is basically where people just throw out names like spaghetti onto onto the wall. And we had a list, a long list of about 150 names. And then we had a series of uh, meetings, which you were involved with too, Michael. We kind of debate and argue it out. And sometimes it gets quite uh, kind of feisty and disputatious where people sort of say, oh, no, we should have more Bitcoiners on the list or more Ethereum people or more NFTs. And, you know, this sort of, and it just speaks to the kind of different tribes of crypto and, and how different people see it differently. It's a story of money, but also a story of culture and, and lots of other things these days. I think, so, I think it's a really interesting yeah. point, right? When you, the process of going through it and dealing with it, the challenges, the pushing, the pulling, et cetera. Yeah, it really does reflect the disparate state of this industry, the many different stakeholders, the competing interests. You know, It's almost like, yeah, you're, we're living that tension as we go through the process, right? Right. Exactly. And to be quite honest, I was on a podcast yesterday or Twitter Spaces, and we had a couple of Bitcoiners calling in and saying that they felt unhappy about the underrepresentation as they saw it of Bitcoiners on the list, uh, even though there are several uh, Bitcoiners on the list. And it's just, you know, as you said in the introduction, it's hard to please everybody. And we do our very best. So yeah. it's fascinating yeah. that you've got not only you've got folks that well, blew things up from the inside, if you will, from inside the tent, right, of the crypto family. And you've got folks from the outside that were throwing darts at this to great influence as well. And so, you know, the call came from inside the building in some cases, but the attacks really on this ecosystem came from inside and outside. And scrolling through it again with, with almost seemingly roughly equal measure, which is quite interesting. And there's a lot of folks on this list that 
made their bones, if you will, by uh, really questioning, you know, the utility of this ecosystem, whether or not bolstered by some of the happenstance, you know, inside the ecosystem, but kind of just saying, like, where is it? And I think it's been fascinating to watch. I kind of went back and looked at previous lists and to watch the evolution to the point that you're making the diversity within the industry itself, of course, is like ever growing. And so how do you, you want to have like some NFT folks and some Bitcoiners and some, you know, all this kind of stuff. But every year there's new projects and new topics and new everything. You know, I remember, Michael, we were talking about this, you know, back in the day when you could kind of, you could hit up all the major conferences. Like it was possible in a year to kind of go to where now, I mean, forget it. Like each sub community has its own series, you know, around the world of events and whatnot. And you kind of, there's no way you could possibly, you know, create track, which is really exciting, but also I can completely see the challenge. The other thing I'll say before we kind of been handing it back over to you is, you know, I always am very interested in the demographics, right? So how many folks are American or Western versus not? How global is representation? What's the gender diversity like? What's the, the ethnic and racial makeup, you know, like? And I got to say, for better or for worse, this is one of, at least from what I can see, you tell me, the more diverse lists in terms of demographics, which is also really interesting. You know, yep. Also, I find that fascinating. But, uh, it's, yeah. Someone pointed out yesterday that, that all the kind of rogues on the list are all guys. So I don't, I don't know what that, <laughs> that means. Uh, you know, the, oh, the, what a uh, surprise. The, well, the, I got comments on that. Well, right. that, that, there are no sort of uh, women, uh, prominent women on this list who, who are there for their misdeeds. So I don't know. We can go what, for days on that topic alone, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> so I don't know if that's, uh, you know, that women don't do bad things or, uh, you know, that companies don't promote women to be CEO so they can do bad things, uh, <laughs> right. one, one or the other. We need Probably more both. women to be capable of doing bad things. That's what we need. Yeah. Well, Definitely. you got to be in a position of power to be that influential. And, you know, yeah. it's, we're not a society that necessarily lets women get to those positions to have that kind of oversized impact. And I would argue, just from looking at history, you know, uh, certainly there are plenty of examples of women who have not exactly... Uh, Elizabeth Holmes comes to mind, right? They've not exactly so. taken the public trust and, and run with it, or maybe they've run with it in a very, a very, very bad way. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still a rarity. It's still a rarity, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, I forgot about Elizabeth Holmes. She's a good example. Yeah. This, is the one, this is the one that sort of would fit this bill right now. So we've got, let me just start at the top here, because again, let's remind people, this is not a ranking. It's just a list. It so happens that the way we presented it on the site, uh, number one, is CZ and number two is Sam Bankman Free, Sam Bankman Free, which is a pretty interesting juxtaposition in its own right. You know, thoughts Ben on how you went about. So Emily Parker wrote a great piece, and then there was one herpes on CZ, and then and Tracy Wang, who of course has covered deeply the whole FTX shenanigans, uh, wrote wrote a lovely piece as well on uh, FTX and Sam Bankman Free. So yeah, your thoughts on those two and. Well, what they represent. Well, just to talk about SBF for a while. I mean, so uh, I'll, I'll admit this: we had a completely different uh, framing on the story you know, months ago when we started doing this, and we, we thought he would be on the list. <laughs> he definitely is an influencer, and we had to completely rewrite the story. But that doesn't really change how influential he is, uh, and, and, and the way he's going on this kind of self-incrimination uh, media tour at the moment does speak to his influence because he, he's still, in some ways, for better or worse, the face of the industry. Everyone wants to talk to him. And you know, he is still out there as, as a sort of spokesperson. So that's why he's on the list. I mean, CZ, he is now the preeminent man in, in crypto, at least in, in corporate crypto. Binance is unrivaled in terms of its volume, in terms of its reach, in terms of its global capacity. He's playing in, in all the most important fields of crypto activity. He really has to be on there. And there's a kind of a fresh story to tell about him this year and his uh, involvement in the downfall of, of SBF. I mean, we said sort of rather 
simplistically, but I think it's partly true. You know, he destroyed SBF and FTX with a single tweet, calling into skepticism, you know, the FTT coin that was kind of at the heart of the, uh, the flaws in that, on that balance sheet of Alameda was, was key to the downfall. And it really set off a, a, a run on that company. So um, he has to I be mean, on just, just that, like, if you're talking about influence, right, that, that's an interesting measure of that. With one tweet, you did this, right? Yep. That is, that's a really interesting way to frame power and influence. You know, think about Elon Musk and his capabilities. And in fact, it's another whole of the conversation about the nature of social say. media and, and everything else, you know, mm-hmm. Sheila? Well, I was going to say, you know, if Elon Musk really does kill Twitter, you know, haha, like that, the influence that's going to have on the crypto ecosystem is pretty profound. You know, it's not as if anyone's picked a, another platform to go to or anything is really ready in the Web3 space for that kind of function. And so the oversized power. But I also think it's the consolidation of power that CZ has amassed over the course of time. And it's not that people weren't aware of the fact that was happening. But with this recent purchase in Japan, you know, there's just uh, by Binance. I mean, there's there is a that all of that is really out of the reach of American antitrust regulators, right? So you can build a massive monopoly in an industry that is so global with a user base that is so global, you really have the opportunity to become the outsized, you know, player, like big time, like the, the big giant gorilla in the room, if you will, um, outside of the realm of most regulators who are going to have a serious issue with that. So it's, yes, there's the power of a single tweet, but also what went behind that and the strategy around consolidation and around grabbing market share in these parts of the world, you know, preceded a lot of that to give him the ability to be able to have the influence with that tweet. You know, so it's it's just a really, it is a fascinating tale. It's also, I think, a cautionary tale. It should be for all of us to really be paying attention to what are we enabling in this market? And, and frankly, what is the U.S. regulatory system enabling by not providing, you know, more attractive options for people to build here in the United States? And give users and consumers access to things like, you know, the anti-monopolist kind of antitrust sorts of regimes that we have here that could prevent this kind of consolidation of massive power. There were so many regulators on your list, and I love that. There are European folks, and, you know, you had uh, Cynthia Lummis and Kirsten Gillibrand, you had Carol House. How did you decide that that this was a, because you know, it's arguably these folks have done things, but they haven't landed things, right? So I'm curious right. why the emphasis this year on that. Yeah. Well, I think this is in the fallout from FTX and the other scandals. So there's a renewed push uh, to regulate whatever that means, in, particularly in DC. The nomination from Carol House came from our uh, regulatory editor, Nick Day, who knows more about the stuff than anyone alive. And he, felt that, that, he felt that the, the influence of that executive order, which was an order for all federal um, you know, government departments to uh, build their policy frameworks uh, around crypto, was very influential this year. And this Carol House person. She's since left the Biden administration, but she's she was quietly influential in, in bringing that together. And we, we like people like that on the list who uh, sort of maybe have flown slightly under the radar, but have still been quietly yeah. influential and sort of highlighting those people in a sort of end of year list seems like a good time to to, to, to be talking about those people. We yeah, had I loved Carol, it. I mean, it? Sorry, it's Sheila. Yeah, well, anyone in Washington can tell you that Carol was, it was hugely influential. So it was a really great call by Nick. And I think it was a great inclusion on the list for sure. But Michael, you were going to say... I'm just saying we had Carol as a speaker at Consensus this year, and mm-hmm. I, I met her at the uh, at dinner, and she was so understated. It was interesting. I mean, she was really – it is. she's one of those classic, quiet, quietly influential people, but she she basically wrote that order, you know, and it's, yeah. um, it is – it's going to shape, I think, and frame the, the structure of the regulatory model for the United States. For, for she had a dry sense of humor as well. When uh, we put the list out uh, earlier this week, she wrote that she was happy to be included alongside SBF 
Um, <laughs> Alex Machinsky and, and the rest of the rogues. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of those rogues, I mean, we we made that decision. You got, you made the decision to lump into. I mean. And we are going to get some positive influences as well. But uh, the Four Horsemen of the Cryptopolis, which is a classic name, because you couldn't just like single out Mashinsky or, you know, Do Kwan. We had to have all of these guys, you know, Suzu from Figueroa's Capital and, and Stephen Ehrlich from Voyager as well. I suppose they were going to be on the list before SBF had to be rewritten as, a, as an item. In some respects, the fact that they're there alongside SBF is to me, underscores how some kind of pretty bad stuff went down this past year, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we didn't want to, frankly, write four stories about the four rogues, but we felt that we wanted all of them on the list, and they sort of seemed like a kind of happy uh, gang together, if if you like. That's why. I will will note as well that on, you know, Coinbase NFT, where they're running an auction for the artwork that's attached to this, I think it's by far the most heavily bid of them, my last I saw thirty-two ETH, I think was the was the highest bid for that yeah. particular piece, which is a really great. Like it's got this frenetic sort of movement through it, and these kind of weird-looking uh, skeleton-like figures. It's it's very cool. Yeah, just to highlight the the NFT portion of this. So, uh, fifteen of the fifty, we uh, commissioned some well-known NFT artists, images of, of of the people, and we worked with Coinbase NFT platform to sell the pieces and about half the profits go to the individual artist and then some comes to us and some goes to charity as well we're working with a climate change charity so that that's a nice sort of component of this and hopefully these pieces will live on and as yeah. art does can we just take a pause though because that is I mean, i'm just thinking this list has been around for what you said nine years nine years yeah okay so nine years ago I mean, an NFT, what? Like, I mean, we were pre-Crypto Kitty, right? So that wasn't a thing. Coindesk was a scrappy publication, you know, trying to make the case that there was enough to cover in this space that was going to be interesting, which was, you know, an interesting thing to put. It was very niche. Let me put it that way. It was quite niche. On that, we were absolutely correct. (laughs) You know, there it is, right? Plenty to cover. I mean, and to the point we were saying earlier, and now this is going for 32E. I mean, what? So I, I just think we have to take a pause in the middle of the rogues gallery and all of it to just say, I mean, the bigger the industry gets the, with the acceleration and the pace of things in just the world in general, you know, the more you're going to see kind of these extreme polarities and personalities that show up. You know, we don't have a, an amateur psychologist. I suppose we have an amateur psychologist. I can play one. We don't have an actual, you know, psychologist online. But I'm sure when you think about the growth of industries and you look at kind of how did power get consolidated? What was the scope and trajectory of that kind of thing, right? Railroads, all the things we've talked about in the past, like all these different technologies that have emerged and then kind of cemented and become ubiquitous in our lives. It's just fascinating to think about the last rough decade and yeah. the influence on culture, right, that this industry has had, the ubiquitous awareness of what's happening in this space and the interest that it garners. It's, it's just yeah. really remarkable. Maybe one of the lessons of SBF and, and the FTX debacle is put too much faith in an individual who was clearly not a good actor. And I think, you know, Michael, you pointed this out in your column the other day that, you know, crypto was supposed to be about decentralization and about code and, you know, these trustless environments. And yet we ended up trusting this guy who who let us down and not to kind of poo-poo our own product here, but, you know, a lot of what goes on in crypto is not about individuals on a list, whether they're good or bad. It should be about, you know, these systems and code. And, and you, it's hard to express that in a people-led list. So I think there's there's some kind of developments going on that are not reflected or can't be reflected in a people-based list because it's not about people. It's about, you know, communities. It's about 
technology and open source, which is sort of antithetical to that whole sort of hero worship idea. Well, 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 you know, one thing I have to say on that is I was kind of hoping that on this list would be the Tornado Cash smart contract address wallet, you know, which was personified it, well, we've by Alexi on there. You do, who's a person, we, but I, I stuff, yeah. what are the, the actual the actual that, wallet should have been on yeah, there. Right? Yeah, right, because it was anthropomorphized by OFAC, right? The idea right. that this right. was something that could be sanctioned. Yeah, yeah. I exactly. was like, oh, that'd be kind of I was kind of wondering if you would be like, haha, let's tongue in cheek lean into that and say, you know, <laughs> not a person and yeah. yet, you know, right. like a person. Very interesting. That's you a know. good that's a good angle. Yeah. Like it would have gone straight to the heart of that debate. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, but we do have Alexi, but also I think just Ben, to your point, we we did of course include the Ethereum developers naming Vitalik, and, but along with our other devs for their contribution in in the merge Ethereum, pulling off this incredibly difficult process of shifting from proof of work to proof of stake. As I think you know, uh, for, former deputy managing uh, editor for news at, at Coinbase said, you know, it was like uh, Zach Seward was saying it was just like mid-flight changing the engine, right? I mean, right. Just, being able to somehow keep this ecosystem with however many you know billions of dollars worth of value in it still functioning and go from a, from one consensus mechanism to another was remarkable, and yet the whole thing seems so far in the past right now. What we thought was going to be the biggest events of the year, and there's been a whole debate around whether or not this is going to lead to decentralization, which is an interesting and problematic issue. But in terms of the focus and conversation of the community. The fact that it's not really out there as a major topic right now, maybe is a reflection of its success, that it just it quietly got done. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, Vitaly Buterin, when reacting to this list, he kind of made that point, you know, uh, and he was saying that names on this list, that they kind of pale in comparison to the importance of the merge and long-term effect of that uh, on the industry. And it's still, I think, the biggest event of the year and, you know, the most one of the most important projects in crypto. And as you say, this is a major, major achievement that probably doesn't get enough uh, credit, you know. Yeah, so. Vitalik's critiques were, were interesting. And I mean, obviously, as a media organization, we welcome all sorts of constructive criticism. I think the fact that Vitalik uh, framed it in what I thought were constructive words was interesting. But I was surprised that he would say that when literally the, the you know, Ethereum devs are there on the list. Um, right. I think further down, we've got, you know, people like Zuko and others. I think conversations around the development of, of zero knowledge proof technologies and, and a yeah. lot of, I mean, there's been an incredible number of innovations that have gone on despite all this stuff. Yeah, I think it's a good point. We tend not to, to pick on them, to pick up on them because the, the, the spotlight gets grabbed by all these other things. But what about the critics? We've got in there Molly White. You know, she, she had this a group of people, all of them quite prominent critics, really just piling on and attacking crypto, almost fearlessly, of course, because they would come under a barrage of attack from crypto defenders perhaps feeling a little vindicated now? I don't know. I mean, what's our, what's our take on her and that group's status on this list? Yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting. And there's always been this kind of cottage industry of critics and certain names come to mind, maybe Amy Castor, uh, David Girard, you know, these historically have been the kind of sort of thorns in the side of, you know, the, the believers of the industry. And, uh, you know, you've been around the space and YouTube, Sheila, a, a while. So there've always been these people we felt that there was a new kind of generation of critics and criticism coming up this year with the ball run. And Molly White, who is a charming person, came up with a website called uh, Web3 is going just great, which she obviously means uh, sarcastically <laughs> because it's a, a chronicle of uh, all the missteps and, as, as you say, the, the cringe of crypto. One reason we wanted to 
put her on the list and kind of highlight these skeptics is that we should be a big enough industry and sort of confident enough in what we're doing to accept this criticism. And I think if there is a criticism of crypto people generally, and maybe Bitcoiners in particular, it's that they are incredibly brittle and defensive about any kind of uh, naysayers. And I think what's good about someone like Molly White is that she's not sort of personal about her attacks. She's not nasty and vindictive in, in, in what she says. It's not all about sort of attacking bros or something like that. She has substantive points to make, and it only makes our industry better um, if we have people like this around, just like it only makes our industry better when Coindesk goes from being just championing uh, projects to you know breaking news like the Alameda balance sheet that led to the downfall of FTX. Ultimately, this is uh, a corrective mechanism in our industry that we badly, badly need. Web3 is magic. In a world where you can buy apes and punks instantly, is real estate the next step? Roofstock OnChain has pioneered the ability to buy homes instantaneously using Web3 technology, while opening up new financing options with DeFi. Follow the white rabbit. Find us at onchain.roofstock.com. That's onchain.roofstock.com. You know, I think it's healthy to have critics, right? And what I find really interesting is as these SBF or FTX or, you know, hearings are coming together, there was the the hearing with Chair Benham, of course, which is like the CFTC, you know, yay or nay, you know, what was your responsibility or not, or this and that, right? Like, what was your authority and not? Fine, very expected. They're going to have the John Ray, of course, like, what are the actual facts? You know, what do you know? And, and what's the bankruptcy process showing and all of that, which is also, you know, obviously very important. But then as we're trying to find folks to, to kind of come in and talk about this, on the list right now, from what I understand, are Ben McKenzie. So Ryan from the OC, yet again, doing his lap, you know, which is such an odd second act, I suppose. <laughs> and Hillary Allen, right? Professor who has in the past likened, um, likened crypto to heroin, which I find very interesting. You know, so, <laughs> so it is interesting, I think, to see people who are, who are critics, I think, in a little more of a healthy way and who are yeah. pointing to evidence, right? As opposed to just kind of this frame of like, all of this is terrible and how dare you and, you know, whatnot, right? But it's also interesting to see how, where that influence is and isn't. So I do think the influencers kind of like on Twitter and kind of in meme land, to your point about younger demographics, are, are different from those who are kind of looked to uh, by Congress and by regulators to kind of, you know, bring forth what's happening in this space. So I don't know if you the professional critic versus the kind of more meme critic. You know, I don't know if you if you have thoughts on that or considered that at all in the cultivation of the list. I hadn't really considered that, but the, the sort of modern critic is probably very socially social media aware, and you know they they're just as devastating with a ten thousand word essay as they are with a well chosen meme. That's definitely true. You know, and what's also interesting to think about, you know, who are they influencing, right? Like, are they influencing potential users? And if so, those folks need to be on those platforms. And these aren't folks who go and do media tours necessarily. I mean, Ben McKenzie aside, these aren't really necessarily folks who are going and doing, you know, in the press and that kind of thing. And it's kind of interesting to kind of see as a general matter, as our demographics change and as we get a younger, younger generation more into, you know, they're, they're, they're the next journalists, they are the next legislators, they are the next, you know, everybody how much of meme culture and that influence is going to impact who is considered as a potent critic versus kind of someone you can just dismiss if you're a traditional institutional player. And right. I don't have any predictions. I just think it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch happen. I hope that it does not become the case that 
you can meme your way into influence completely, although we already see that happening. But I would like to think that having an evidence base and having actual proof of you know criticism is something that's going to remain important. I guess we'll see. Yeah, I've often thought that a lot of the critics, I mean, David Gerard's one that brings to mind. Every now and then he gets something right, but I feel like there's a lot of emotional kind of poo-pooing. It's kind of gotcha-ish. And it doesn't mean that the criticism is not valid, but it, it often doesn't feel that sophisticated. But there are, there are real sophisticated critics. And, and to Ben's point, they're, they're a really important part of the process. And I think crypto people need to be much thicker skinned than they are. But like moving from that, just Ben, like before we, you know, we're going to wrap up relatively soon, but this was a year uh, in addition to the rogues gallery of, I think, some incredible strides in terms of how NFTs Web3, you know, it's the moment, wrote about this, you know, myself last week, you know, where brands and marketing have really inter started intersecting quite closely with this technology, specifically via NFTs. And we have, you know, on the list, we have Snowfro, for example, uh, you know, incredible work being done in really building out this new, essentially an entirely new uh, genre of art, right? Generative art, which I think possibly could have existed without NFTs, but has been completely spearheaded and driven by the fact that these things can be sold. For those who don't know, generative art is, you know, it's, it's an AI-driven, evolving kind of concept of, of digital art. And then, then for Wocious, this very successful young artist also on the list, and the folks from Vayner and, and others. So we have this, uh, as I say, it's a somewhat cynical list in some respects, like dealing with heavy issues. And here's this sort of like hopeful, kind of like really innovative element of what's happening right now. Definitely. I mean, NFT is a big story of the year. And another one we could point to are the founders and CEO of the Board Apes franchise. Right. And they really kind of crossed the Rubicon this year from being a kind of fun NFT project that crypto people were trading to really being taken seriously in Hollywood. And, and I think that's another kind of way in which crypto has penetrated the mainstream or penetrated the kind of power centers of America, whether that's DC or Wall Street or Hollywood, you know, it's, it's taken seriously across the piece. I would totally agree that that's one of the kind of abiding and long-lasting developments in this industry this year was the culturalization, and if you can say that, of crypto. It, it went from being a story mostly about the future of money to being about culture and you yeah. know where the young people are sort of hanging out as well as sort of transacting. So that's surely a big moment. And NFT, you know, as we know, there's a huge potential there to put a kind of digital rights layer across all kinds of you know digital and non-digital items so uh it's just the beginning of that yeah i'm i'm, I'm glad you highlighted the board apes i just uh, missed by not spotting it because they really are so important and i think for me one of the things that stands out about what that project has achieved is it it kind of rewrote the idea of copyright and how it's actually a source of value right like they've just the idea that there's this derivative rights that you could pass on to some of the owners, but keep some of it for yourself and use this idea of a platform of development in a way for a community that share one sort of common IP and then have their own separate rights to do things and build value that way. I don't think people are like how much of a radical departure that is from what we've been dealing with for most of the Web2 era with brand or you know entertainment company X holding the exclusive rights to, say, Mickey Mouse or something, and then suing your ass if you do something with it, you know, as opposed to like, hey, I have this. Here's what I get back out of it. Here's what you get out of it. Build this thing. We'll collectively grow value, you know? It's fascinating. And I think as we, you know, this, this week, my column, Ben, I haven't told you what it's about because you're my editor on this stuff, but I am going to talk about GPT chat and how it 
I think is going to just end up ending the whole business of search. So Google, mm. and then what then becomes the business model of the internet if you don't have this advertising model? I think it's NFTs, right? I think it is going. So there's something mm. really quite important about what these guys have done. Sheila, I think you wanted to, to jump in. Yeah, no, I think it's it's interesting to me through all my feeds and everywhere that's coming through so strongly, but not really from crypto folks. So I'm really happy that you're going to be talking about that. And I think that awareness is just going to rise. I mean, some devs are obviously paying a lot of attention to this, but I feel like it's really more Web2 people who are really talking about about this and not so much our ecosystem players. Maybe you're seeing this differently, but that's what I'm seeing coming through all my feeds and from the people I'm talking to out here in the Valley. It's mind-blowing to you know people who are kind of thinking about traditional coding, we put it that way, like Web2 coding, right? Versus kind of our ecosystem. But yeah. but I think there's yeah. an intersection of these things. That's just the thing. Anyway, that's getting off topic Definitely. a little bit, but we have to wrap up in just a moment. But Ben, I mean, any passing thoughts on the year that was and, and uh, how it reflected in this list? Well, I've just, it's never a dull moment, right? I mean, we've <laughs> all been in this space a while and it just, when you think it's gotten crazy, it gets crazier. And this year is, I don't know, I think it's really topped, topped it all for market highs, market lows for classic scandals and the SPF scandal just really has absolutely everything as a story. That's why, you know, Hollywood and Netflix and your mother and your father is now looking to make TV series out of this because it just has everything. And I think it was the year we said this many times uh, that crypto really definitely and truly passed into the mainstream for better and worse. And it's here to stay. Those people that say crypto's over or something because of SPF, they don't know what they're talking about. Well, good luck so, with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. All right. Listen, thanks. I mean, I always like to say that, you know, no matter what happens, uh, I think both lawyers, and this is a nod to, to you, Sheila, and journalists uh, have, have, will always have, have something out of any of this, right? There's, <laughs> it, it, one of the great use cases of crypto is to actually write and talk about it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually is so much to say, so much to discuss. So, Ben, thanks for, uh, for doing all that you do to, to enliven the conversation around these things and to sort of bring forward these concepts and, and so forth. I think it's, uh, I'm proud of the list. Sheila, as always, thanks for joining and adding all of your tremendous insights and thoughts. And thank you to all of you for listening once again to Money Reimagined. Uh, please come back next week for another edition. That's all we have for now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Announcements by Adam B. Levine, and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>